Mark chapter number 5 this morning. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 21. The Word of God says, And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. When he saw him, he fell at his feet, and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things and many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse, when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace, and be whole of thy plague." While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead, why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado, and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel, and them that were with him, and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand, and said unto her, Talitha cumi, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, Arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve years, and they were astonished with a great astonishment. Let's pray together. Father, I love you. I thank you for your word. Lord, what a privilege it is to have a Bible. Lord, something we can hold in our hands and read and study and preach and believe on and obey. Help us this morning to come as students of the Bible. Lord, help us to lay ourselves before your examination room. And Father, that you would do your work. And I know you will. I know you'll be faithful to, Lord, to convict hearts, to encourage those that are downtrodden, to abase those that are haughty, And, Father, that all things might work according to your will and for your glory. Now, Lord, we're trusting this to you. Help us to be obedient to respond. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm interested in a question that is asked to Jarius by one of his household in verse number 35. I want you to listen to this carefully. It says, While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further. Now, this is fascinating to me for this reason, that when Jairus first sets out of his house and goes to find Jesus, we learn, and we'll say a word about it a little later on, but we learn that in his mind, he considered that his daughter was already dead. He knew that when he left her, she was at the point of death, uh, but he assumed by the time he gets to Jesus that probably she is already dead. And then he turns around, and as he brings Jesus to the house... The entire multitude is thronging about him, and they're having trouble getting there. But Jairus just keeps on traveling. 
And then, as they're walking along, a woman reaches out and touches the hem of Jesus' garment and stops the whole show, for lack of a better term, while they stop and deal with this woman and talk to her. But Jairus just waits patiently. Then after this is done, as they travel further, one of his household comes and says, Well, you're right, Jairus, she didn't make it. She's dead. There's no point in Jesus coming to the house. Jesus turns and looks at Jairus and says, Hey, don't believe that. Believe me. Amen. Uh, it'd do us good if we'd learn to take God at His Word instead of the devil at His Word. And he says, Hey, listen, don't worry about that. Just believe only. And they keep going. And Jairus continues to walk. As they approach the house, man, they've already got the funeral going on. The music is playing, people are weeping, they're wailing, but there goes Jairus still walking in with Jesus. Then Jesus uh, puts everyone out of the house and brings Jairus into the room, just him and his wife, and uh, and Peter and James and John begins to uh, talk to them, and he reaches down, heals the daughter, and raises her up, and she's miraculously healed. Now, that's the story that we're all familiar with, that we all know. But the thing that fascinates me is the persistence of Jairus in getting Jesus to his house. And this is illustrated by the fact that this servant comes and says, Hey, it's too late, it's done, it's over, we've messed up, we've missed the boat. Why trouble Jesus any further? You know, as I think about this passage, I can't help but be struck by the similarity to prayer. In fact, whenever Jairus comes to Jesus, the way he says it in verse 23 is he says, I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed and she shall live. You know, when we approach God and we have a need and our hearts are broken, uh, we're approaching unto Him in the same way that Jairus did. And though we may not walk to a physical location and uh, talk to Him uh, in in a physical ear and grab Him by a physical hand and, and carry Him to a physical house, we are nonetheless approaching unto God, troubling Him because we have a need. Now, let me say this. Of course, we understand it's never in trouble to God to answer our prayers But it does uh, bespeak this question. This is what I want to preach on today. Why troublest thou the Master? Or maybe we could say it this way. Why do we pray? Why do we come to God and seek His face? Why should we be patient and passionate and persistent in prayer? Now, before we get there, I want to make a few notes about uh, Jairus' steadfastness. And I just want to remind you this. Number one, you ain't always going to get your prayers answered the first time you pray them. That's just the reality of it. And we could spend hours talking about the reason. Sometimes God is ministering something in our life. Sometimes God is ministering something in the life of the person or the situation we're praying about. Sometimes God's ministering in the lives of people we don't even know. Amen? And uh, God has many reasons for His timetable. But you and I are called to be persistent in prayer, to not give up in prayer, to keep seeking God in prayer, to keep troubling the Master for the needs and problems that we face. I'd like for you to notice a few things. Number one, Jairus remains steadfast in the face of despair. Now, when he goes, he believes his daughter is probably already dead. I don't know what you would have done. I don't know what I would have done. But I would say this. It's not hard to imagine that a person might have looked at it and said, Hey, even Jesus can't help her. And there will be times in your life when situations seem so desperate, seem so troublesome, that your problems will seem so big that the first obstacle you'll have to overcome is you'll have to remind yourself that God is bigger than your problems, that God is more mighty than the forces that are opposing you, and that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. He remains steadfast in the face of despair. He remains steadfast in the face of delay. 
I don't know what it was like, but I can imagine being Jairus when that woman reaches out and grabs the hem of Jesus' garment. Now, he's already said, my, my daughter may be dead as we speak. And now the whole thing's stopping while Jesus ministers to somebody else. You know, one of the most discouraging things sometimes in your prayer life is when you're begging God for something and you see Him doing that thing in somebody else's life and you wonder why He ain't doing it in your life. Have you ever had a time when you was asking, begging God for a loved one, and there you see God working miraculously in the life of someone else's loved one and thought to yourself, hey, what's the hold of? Hey, why is it not getting done on my end? Hey, why is God doing for them what He's not doing for me? And those moments, man, we have to remind ourselves that God is no respecter of persons and that God doeth all things well and the judge of the earth shall do right. We may not understand it. We may not be able to wrap our mind around it. You may be praying for things right now and you can't see a reason in the world why God wouldn't just reach from heaven and grant an answer. But hey, He sits in heaven and sees the whole picture. We sit down here and see only a glimpse. We've got to trust Him and remain persistent in prayer. And then, when we look at the face of discouragement, we see Jairus, there, there all of his servants come out. And I don't know, I, we, it's hard to judge the tenor and tone of the statement. I don't know, maybe that servant came and was heartbroken with tears in his eyes, but it seems kind of callous, don't it? That servant comes out and just says, hey, your daughter's dead. Why trouble you the master any further? You know, have you ever run into a situation where somebody decided they wanted to talk some sense into you and try to get you grounded back down when there was something you was praying and asking God for and they wanted to give you a reality check? Uh, this servant comes out and says, Hey, is everybody all right today? I know it's raining. Did, uh, somebody's ears must have got waterlogged. Amen. We all need to do one of these right here. Amen. And try to get our ears a little unplugged. Somebody needs to help me in this service. Amen. Y'all just sitting there like you ain't never heard preaching before. There are times when people will actively discourage you as you're seeking God in prayer. You ever known somebody that had a knack for saying the wrong thing at the wrong moment? They could find you and uh, when you're in the midst of despair and you're clinging to every bit of hope that you can and you're begging God for something, they come along and want to tell you every bad story of everything that ever happened in their life. They want to tell you every time it didn't work out for them and their cousin and their mama and their friend and their friend's friend. There's going to be people in your life, I'm telling you, I want you to listen carefully. The devil will put people in your life when you're praying for something and asking God for something that will come along whose distinct purpose, and they may not mean it. I don't think this servant's expressed volitional intention was to discourage Jairus, but here's Jairus trying to cling to hope. Here's Jairus trying to beg God. Here's Jairus trying to get Jesus into the house. And here comes somebody to say, what's the point of it all? There's times in your life where there'll be somebody come along and say, what's the point? Nothing's ever going to change. Nothing ever's going to happen. But Jairus, he just kept on. And I like that. I admire that. I need that in my prayer life, and I bet you do too. And I see three reasons why he kept praying that I think are reasons that we need to have in our mind as we're praying and seeking God for things. Let me say number one to you this morning. He just kept praying, number one, because of the great trial that he was facing. You know why I pray? Because I got problems. I pray because I got problems. I pray because there's things I need God to intervene in. Hey, listen, there's, there's families I'm broken over. There's homes I'm broken over. There's people I'm troubled for. Hey, there's needs that need to be met. I pray because I got lots of prayers to be prayed. And Jairus was the same way. He had a big problem. This problem, and I want you to notice just quickly three things about it. Number one, it was an important problem. 
The Bible tells us that this was his only daughter. Now, I'm not implying if he had six daughters, he would have been willing to get rid of them. Only somebody that's raised teenage girls can answer that. But I am saying this. This was his little girl. And those of you daddies that have raised little girls, I've been spared. I've not had to carry that cross. But those of you that have, you know, man, there ain't nothing like daddy's little girl. And here's this little 12-year-old girl, and she's laying on her deathbed. Nothing in the world was more important to Jairus than that little girl. You know, the reason we pray, and I think we ought to pray over big things and small things, but let us never forget that the thing that drives us to prayer is this, that we have things in our life that are important. I want you to listen carefully. You're praying for a child that's out of the will of God. That's important. Your child out of the will of God is in a more perilous situation than this 12-year-old girl laying on her deathbed. Hey, listen, when we're praying and begging God to protect and preserve our marriage, that's a bigger problem than even Jairus had. When we're asking God to sweep through and to save sinners and to give revival and to minister in our church family, that's a big thing that we're asking. And so it's worth praying. So often we just get this idea that we just need to go through and try to fix what we can and leave what we can't fix and just whatever it is is what it is. But I want you to understand, hey, we've got some things that we have need of in our life. Like David said, we're a poor and needy people. We need God to intervene and we need God's help. We need God's strength. He had an important problem. Let me say number two, it was an imminent problem. We know it was imminent for this reason, two reasons. One, because she died before they got back. So evidently it was imminent. It was pressing. But let me say, too, I think we can discover how pressing it was when we look at the three different ways her condition is described. Uh, Three different things are said about the condition she was in when Jairus comes to Jesus. In Luke chapter 8, it simply says that she's dying. Now, one could maybe say we're all dying. Amen? Uh, Every one of us. uh, Some of y'all didn't like that when I said that. We're all, I, I don't know if you realize this, I don't know if they taught you this in health class, but you're one day closer to death today than you were yesterday. We're all dying. But then we have another perspective in the passage that we read. You see, here, Jerry says she is at the point of death. Now, that's a whole separate thing. We're all dying. But this little girl was at the point of death. And in Matthew's account, something entirely different is said. It says this, she is even now dead. Now, before you get all high and mighty and say, well, preacher, there's a problem in the Gospels. That ain't no problem. Let me say it to you this way. Well, if I was to come to you and I was to say, uh, hey, listen, uh, I'm getting hungry. I'm at the point of hungry. In fact, I'm even now hungry right now. Amen? He comes to Jesus, and here's what I think he was saying. I think he was probably saying this, my daughter's dying. She's at the point of death. And even now, unless something changes, she's dead. In other words, here's what we grasp from what he's relating. He's saying this, something has to change. You know what a lot of us need to understand in our life? We need to understand that spiritually speaking, something has to change. Has to change. If we keep doing what we've always done, we're going to get what we've always got. We're going to have to be shook up a little bit. We're going to, it's going to take more dedication than we've had. It's going to take more commitment than we've had. We live in a day of dialing things down. Everything's conditioned towards it. We're all the time trying to figure out an easier, cheaper, simpler way to get everything done. But I've got news for you. When it comes to the Christian walk, there is no easier, simpler, cheaper way to do things. There's only the way of discipleship. 
And we can only... Hey, listen, if we want to see something change, we've got to give more of ourselves. And listen, I ain't talking about what's in your wallet. I'm talking about what's in your heart. We've got to give more of ourselves than we've given before. Something had to change. And by the way, you know, just because you don't pray about something, that don't mean it ain't going to go wrong. Sometimes we live in a form of denial. Where we look at it and we say, well, I just won't acknowledge it. I just won't recognize it. Denial does not accomplish anything. Prayer accomplishes everything. He came to Jesus because he, if He didn't come to Jesus, nothing was going to change. That little girl was on a trajectory. She was dying. He had to pray. He had to seek if something was going to change. And listen, I pray because that's the only way anything's going to get done. I pray because if I don't, things fall apart. And I'm not, listen, I'm not talking about ministry. I'm not talking about church, although it is true there. I'm talking about me emotionally, spiritually. If I'm not seeking God, I won't hold together. If I'm not seeking God, my marriage won't hold together. If I'm not seeking God, my kids' well-being won't hold together. This isn't a passive thing is what I'm saying. It was an imminent need. And then let me say this. He came to Jesus because it was an impossible need. Isn't it interesting? Here's this ruler of the synagogue. I'm talking about plum silly with religion. No telling how many friends he had that were priests, that were Pharisees, that were Sadducees. But couldn't none of them, couldn't none of them heal that little girl. He came to Jesus because nobody else could help. I've got news for you. There's some things. Hey, Christ healed a, a young man that had had a demon uh, in him uh, ever since he was a child. And the disciples, after uh, Christ came down off the Mount of Transfiguration, he walks into the scene and the disciples, they're sitting there scratching their heads. They don't know what to do. And uh, the father of that little boy comes to Jesus and says, I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't do anything. Jesus, of course, casts that devil out of that young boy and heals him. But then he turns and looks at his disciples and he says this, This kind cometh forth not but by prayer and fasting. In other words, there's some things ain't going to get done except they get done by prayer. There's some things in life that are too big, that are beyond us. And you can imagine the helplessness that Jairus must have felt as he sat there moment by moment, minute by minute, hour by hour, and watched his little girl slip away and finally said, I've had enough. I can't fix it. I can't change it. The doctors can't do it. The priests can't do it. I've got to do something about this. And so he went to the one that could. Listen, I'll tell you why I pray, because there's things I need done in my life that I can't do. Uh, there's things I need done in my life that, that nobody can do. Listen, I trouble the Master because uh, our church, hey, listen, our church can't be the life that it needs to be unless God helps us to be it. I trouble the Master because my marriage can't be what it needs to be except the, the Lord help us. I trouble the Master because I can't raise my children except God enable me to do so. I'm saying this, you can't do it on your own and that's why you pray. That's why you pray. It's no admission of our weakness, it's an admission of God's power to acknowledge that we can't do it, but God can. I think he kept troubling the Master because of the great trial he was facing. But I think, number two, he kept troubling the Master because of the great touch that he was seeking. So the first thing or the last thing we mention that he realizes is he can't do it. So he goes to the only singular one that can do it. Here's what I want you to understand. And I've learned this. in the And listen, I'm not pastoring 8,000 people. I wouldn't know what to do. Amen. I'd probably just hide from Sunday to Sunday if I did. But I'm not no kind of church growth guru, but I do understand this. The fads come and the fads go, but except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. By the same token, hey, listen, 
You can read all the books for your family and for your marriage, for your kids that you want to. But except the Lord, hey, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Except the Lord join it together, then it won't hold. You can read all the parenting books you want. Parenting advice is funny. Uh, but most people change their parenting perspective more than their underwear. Amen? And you can go, listen, you can go on the Internet today and it'll tell you something to do with your kids. And you can go on in a week, it'll tell you something else to do with it. Kind of like these diet things, right? One day trans fats are bad for you, the next day they cure cancer. Amen? Who knows? Who knows? They don't know either. Amen? The truth of the matter is, only, hey, only by the wisdom of the Word of God can we parent the way we need to. And I'm saying of every area of your life, the beginning of, of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And only by God's help can we accomplish what needs to be done. I pray because nobody can help me but God. I pray. I pray because I need three things from Him. Number one, I need His presence. Jerry says, come. Come to my house. He said, if I don't get God in this situation, it's going to go downhill. I pray because only God can bless me with His presence. When we talk about the presence of God, there is the explicit presence of God, and then there is the effectual presence of God. The explicit presence of God is the fact that God has promised He'll never leave us nor forsake us, and God is most certainly always with us. But, I, you know, I was reading a passage in Deuteronomy 23, I believe verse 14, last night even. It was talking about the Lord thy God walking in the midst of thy camp. We've been praying and seeking God's face for our camp week this next uh, summer. And I was reading that verse where it talks about the Lord thy God walketh in the midst of thy camp to deliver thee and to deliver up thine enemies before thee. And he says, Therefore shall thy camp be holy, lest he turn away from thee. Now, God never left the children of Israel, explicitly speaking. But by the same token, effectually speaking, if they didn't walk with God, then the presence of God wouldn't abide in power with them. Listen, we have the explicit presence of God. God's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He's always going to be with you. But if you want to enjoy the presence of God, if you want to experience what God's manifest presence is, and I'm not talking about seeing visions. I ain't talking about talking in tongues. Amen? Uh, Listen, I don't do well with English. Amen? I'm not talking about talking in tongues. I'm talking about God showing up in might and power in the midst of a congregation and walking the pews and stirring hearts and opening hearts. I'm talking about when you're in the midst of trial and affliction and trouble, God just walking in the room and wrapping His arms around you. I'm talking about when trials and difficulties come, God walking into a situation and the problems walking out. I'm saying we need the presence of God and only God can give me His presence. So I pray and I ask God for His presence. Because I need His presence. I need His participation. Jerry says, lay your hands upon her. In other words, he wanted God to take this situation in His hands. Hey, listen, I'll tell you why I pray. Because when I keep the problems in my hands, I make a mess out of them. Uh, there, there's, uh, listen, there, there's, there, there's no... Well, I'm not going to say that. There's nothing so sound but what a little fixing can tear it up. When we start tinkering, when we start messing with it, when we start trying to fix it ourselves. So many of us, listen, I'm not talking about living with sin in our lives and refusing to repent, but I'm talking about situations that don't have anything to do with sin in our life, but they're problems that have been thrust upon us. Our tinkering and our messing and our trying to fix is going to do nothing but make it worse. I don't need it in my hands. It's probably broke because it was in my hands in the first place. I need it in God's hands. 
And I trouble the Master because I need God to take control of this thing. Uh, One of the things you're going to learn if you ever grow close to a preacher or a pastor is you're going to learn that we ain't got it all together. We're just doing everything we can to get it to the one that does. And the sooner you learn in life that it ain't your job to straighten everything out, it's your job to pray and carry it to the one that can straighten everything out. And put it in His hands. Hey, she said, I, he said, I can't heal her, but if I can just get her in God's hands, He can do something that I can't do. And then He wanted God's power. He said, come and lay hands on her and she shall be healed and she shall live. I, listen, I pray for things because what needs to happen is beyond my capability to make happen. I can't do it. The sooner you learn that you can't change a person's heart, the sooner you learn that you can't manipulate a person's actions, the sooner that you learn that it's beyond you to orchestrate and manipulate the world around you, the sooner that you realize that you're beholden to circumstances that are oftentimes greater than you but not greater than God, the sooner you'll begin to seek His face and ask Him to do what you can't do for yourself. Jerry says, hey, listen, I keep troubling Him because what I need done, nobody else can do i got a problem the priest couldn't fix. i got a problem the doctors couldn't fix. i got a problem that I couldn't fix. And so I had to go to the one that could. And then I'm going to give you one more thing and I'll be done. I believe that he troubled the Master because of the great trial he was facing. And I, I pray because I've got problems. I've got big problems and I can't fix them. I believe he prayed because of the great touch he was seeking. The problems I have can only be solved by God. So I've got to go to God to see them solved and to see him fixed. But I think he prayed and troubled the Master because of the great testimony he was trusting. It's funny when you look at what happens with this woman with the issue of blood in the midst of this story. It is, to my knowledge, the only parenthetical miracle that you'll find in the Word of God. In other words, Christ is going, He's doing something, in the middle of it all, He stops and He turns and He does something else. Certainly there are not very many of them if there are any more than the one in front of us. I think there are some reasons. I think there's, personally, I think there are some dispensational reasons for this. I think there's some pictures here of, of what God is doing throughout humanity. But you just put yourself in the shoes of Jairus. Whenever this happened, he could have done one of two things. He could have took this as a point of envy. I don't know what you would have done, but I would have probably said, Hey, woman, get your own Savior. I would have probably said, hey, lady, I'm sorry. Uh, Listen, I feel bad for you, but I got to him first. Hush your mouth. Keep your hands to yourself. My daughter is dying. We've got to hurry. Literally, we, we understand that moments mattered. Because when they get to the house, when Jairus leaves, and I don't know how far the distance was, I don't know how long it took him, but when Jairus leaves, she's alive. When he comes back, she's dead. Moments mattered. And it would have been real easy to look and to get angry, as so often we're prone to do when we see God working in somebody else's life but not working in ours. We're asking God for something. He's doing it for them, but He's not doing it for us. It could be a point of envy. But instead, you know what He did? He took it as a point of encouragement. It's evident Jairus didn't give up. Why? Because he kept going. Whenever it's done, now again, most of us would have probably got mad, took our ball and went home, said, this Jesus, if he cared anything about my daughter, he wouldn't be over here messing with this woman with the issue of blood. We would have got mad, we would have stomped off. But Jairus instead, you know what he did? He stood back and he watched. And when he watched what God was doing in someone else's life, 
he learned three important truths. One, he learned that Jesus' timing was perfect. Now, stop and imagine it. You're walking through. And for Jairus, it's the worst possible time for this woman to reach out. But if you're that woman, hey, it was the best possible time for Jairus to be bringing Jesus by her way. When you flip that thing around, you know what you'll realize is this, that God is working many things at many times. His purposes are manifold. You know what that means? He's doing. God's a multitasker. He never does just one thing at a time. And the thing that you need to do, instead of looking at yourself and saying, why ain't God doing it for me? Why don't you look at that person's life and say, hey, look how God showed up at just the right moment. So God must have perfect timing. Imagine that Jesus would be passing through this town at just the right moment for this woman to hear His name, to run out. I don't know how she spent her days. I don't know how she spent her time. But I understand that the timing was perfect for her to run out and to touch Jesus' garment. Oh my, the divine counsels of God are magnificent. And Jairus could look at that and say, Hey, it may not look like He's on time to me. But evidently, Jesus was right on time. You can look at it and say things are clicking right along per schedule because this woman needed healed and Jesus came by at just the right moment. I may not understand His timing, but I can trust His timing. I may not understand His timing, but I can trust His timing. He learned when he looked at this woman with the issue of blood that Christ's timing was perfect. He also learned that His touch was powerful. This woman reaches out and touches the hem of His garment. Listen, there's a lot of imagery there. The hymn, as it related to rabbis, was a picture of the promises of God to the nation of Israel. Oh, my. I, I got a whole other sermon that you're going to hear at some point that I'm doing everything I can to not preach at this very moment. But uh, whenever she reaches out, she don't even touch him. She just touches his garment. She don't even touch him. She just touches his garment. And she's healed in that moment. Now, it would have been real easy for Jairus to say, why do you do that for her? but not do it for my daughter. Instead, Jairus looks at it and says this, if he can do it for her, he can do it for my daughter. When you see God working in other people's lives, don't look at it and say, why them? Why not me? Look at it and say, God's no respecter of person. If He's powerful enough to do that in their life, then He can answer in my life. And he knew what I need to be done. He learned that all Jesus had to do uh, to, uh, to defeat and thwart death was just walk in and touch that girl. And he could raise her. And then you know what he learned? And I'm encouraged by this. He learned that Christ's temper is patient. It's interesting what happens with this woman because she expects Jesus to be angry. She goes and hides herself. I don't know if she just thought she wasn't going to get caught or what she thought or believed, but the moment that she touches Jesus' garment, he stops and he says, Who touched me? And the disciples look at him and say, What do you mean, who touched you? There's multitudes. Everybody's pushing and shoving. No telling who touched you. He says, No, no. These people are touching me by accident. This, this woman touched me by providence. And these people, listen, they're, they're, they're just in, they're just in the, the multitude, but this woman wretched out in faith. Somebody touched me. The Bible says he turned around to look upon her. You know why? Because he already knew who it was. Why did he ask the question? So the disciples would say, well, look at who touched the hem of Jesus' garment. And so he turns around and he sees her. And the Bible says she fell at his knees and told him all the truth. You can imagine her spitting it out. Listen, I've been, I've been for many years sick and I've gone to doctors and I've tried to get it fixed and I've tried to do everything I could. And then I heard you coming by and I've heard about the miracles you've done and I just didn't know what to do and I was totally helpless and I retch out and I touched your garment and now I'm healed. Yeah. 
And Jesus looks at her and says, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. I don't know what they expected of Jesus, but they found out this, that he wants to be wretched out to. They found this, that he desires to heal. They found this, that, that whenever you get a hold of him, he ain't mad about it. He turns around and, listen, you get a hold of him for a blessing and he'll turn around and bless you more than what you even asked for. She just wanted her body healed, but she walked away with her soul healed. What he learned was that Jesus is patient and he's perfect in what he does. And, you know, the reason I pray is because I understand this, that God doesn't get upset with me praying. Even when I pray and my faith is small and even when I pray and my understanding is darkened and even when I pray and my, my disposition is complaintive, He doesn't get angry with me when I pray. Instead, He desires for me to reach out to Him. He longs for me to come into His presence. Insomuch as He said, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace. Listen, I pray because God wants me to pray. And I come into the throne room because God's hung a welcome sign for all those saved by grace right outside of it. And He has said, hey, listen, don't come forth barely. Come forth boldly and seek my face and get help in time of need. I pray because God wants me to pray. Because I'm welcome in God's throne room. I pray because i got problems. I pray because those problems are bigger than I can fix or anyone else can. And I pray because I've seen God fix big problems in other people's lives. And I've seen the testimony of His power and might. And I know that He not only can answer prayers, He wants to answer prayers and He will answer prayers if I'll come unto Him and pray. Let's